Hello and welcome to Day Unplugged. It's Tuesday the 18th of February 2020. As ever, Mark Pender is across the pond stateside and I'm Jeremy Hawkins here in London. Not surprisingly, the coronavirus, or COVID-19 as it's now known, continues to hang over financial markets and earnings warnings from the likes of Apple just yesterday cautioned that the global economic impact could yet be significant. And that, despite the apparent confidence of the equity markets in the ability of the authorities to stabilise the situation. For now, we'll just have to wait and see how things pan out, but it's probably safe to say that the longer the virus is with us, the greater will be the chance of monetary easing from at least some central banks. And not just in China, where ongoing efforts to boost confidence and stimulate economic activity included the PBOC cutting its one-year lending rate on Monday. The economics then, Mark, what have we got? Yeah. PMI, FOMC minutes this week. Any thoughts on those and anything else we should be looking at um, over the next coming days? Well, the FOMC minutes would precede the uh, virus, um, so they may not be as uh, urgent as... Um, news uh, such as the PMIs uh, which will um, which we got la- at the end of last week and, and we had uh, uh, are they coming up at the end of this week no the, the end of this week where you're going to have a run of them in Europe right um, yeah that's right we also what, get the composite one don't we from the market for states Friday isn't it that's right that, that's not too uh, closely followed here as as yours and yeah Europe. yeah but what I was referring to here is the Empire State report which came out this morning it's re- the first indication on um, February factory conditions in the US and there was absolutely no indication whatsoever of any kind of supply uh, shortages uh, or any kind of disruptions in fact the report was one of the strongest in the last uh, couple of years year and a half everything was uh, looking very good uh, orders were way up there was no inventory issues uh, uh, input costs actually declined a little or uh, yeah, growth eased a little bit so we don't see anything there and that is kind of a surprise and Thursday we'll get the Philadelphia Fed report which is also a manufacturing survey it's more closely watched what's interesting about the Empire State unfortunately and also Philadelphia unfortunately is they don't have any commentary from their respondents so we're, it, uh, and that's something that the ISM has also the uh, market economics with the PMIs which we'll be getting at, at the end of the week uh, and I guess a little slowing is actually the expectations for all of these in Europe as well um, they had popped up in January uh, uh, just a little bit to show a little bit of growth and I guess we're uh, forecasters are looking for that to ease back a, a little bit I have a question for you Jeremy now you uh, you have, uh, how do you break apart, for instance, the, the German um, PMI, where the manufacturing sector is in, in, well under 50 and in, in the 45 range, which is very low. You also have France, and you also have uh, the Eurozone itself. I mean, um, how do you break those apart? Should we just be looking at the Eurozone, or do, what does that mean for the German report? Well, I mean, it's a good question. I suppose um, the, the straightforward answer to that is uh, the, the main market focus tends to be on Germany typically first, simply because Germany is the largest component of the Eurozone uh, in terms of GDP population. Uh, and also German data tend to come out in advance of uh, the overall Eurozone figures. So I think by and large, it's fair to say that analysts tend to look at the German data first uh, with a view to you know, to try and calculate what Eurozone is going to look at. But yes, I mean, it's 
at the end of the day, you can't simply look at you know just one part of the eurozone because worst case for the eurozone is when you have a broad base decline in whatever it may be you're looking at. Um, it's quite possible, and, and, and indeed for a while we had, as, as we've talked about often in the past, a, a really dire situation in German manufacturing, whereas other parts of the eurozone, the, the goods producing sector has been holding up relatively well. Um, but it's got to be said at the end of the day, as far as financial markets are concerned, because, simply because of its size, what happens to Germany is quite often viewed as being kind of a leading indicator of what's going to happen to the eurozone as a whole. Um, and I guess, you know, just sticking with sort of the manufacturing side, it's, you know, that's very much reflected in what's been happening within, within industrial production for the Eurozone. Last week, I mean, we, we talked a little about the, the numbers which were upcoming then, the December industrial production figures on the basis of some awful numbers out of Germany. Well, as it turned out for the Eurozone as a whole, we saw, uh, well, one of the steepest declines in industrial production. It's down over 2% on the month. That's one of the steepest falls we've seen since February 20, what, two. 2009. And that so, was December, and that was at the end of the last year. That's right. Um, so effectively, we're talking one of the worst performances since the global financial crisis. And indeed, just looking at the level of industrial production in the eurozone now that's equals its lowest mark since what 2016 so essentially we're talking now over what three and a half years effective mm -hmm. we haven't really seen any growth coming out of out of you know, manufacturing in the eurozone as a whole we also now know that courtesy of germany because we've now got the preliminary figures for german gdp which failed to grow at the back end of last year so fourth quarter gdp in germany only matched its third quarter outlook I and mean, its out uh, third quarter performance rather it's you know, it really does underline the fact that the eurozone has, has some big problems at the moment. Well, it's, it's dead. It's dead. It's shocking in a way how weak that fourth quarter data was, but um, it's just dead flat. Uh, now, it, okay. So I have a question for you. So the ECB was looking at a little bit of a pop up in the PMIs for January, which showed an improvement, and they preferred to uh, concentrate or emphasize that uh, as opposed to the hard lagging data. Um, and uh, and so now we have these PMIs coming up at the end of the week, and uh, how do you think that's going to play for expectations? If they hit expectations, which is a little bit down from January, how do you think that that will affect monetary policy expectations? I think at the moment, Eurozone is becoming one of the interesting ones. I think, you know, you'd probably say from your side, what's going to happen to Fed policy? Well, likely for the foreseeable future, not a great deal. As far as the Eurozone is concerned, though, I think that, you know, towards the back end of last year, the expectation was, well, you know, we've got the new president in with uh, Christine Lagarde. But ostensibly, the, the medium term outlook for the ECB policy has already been set. Nothing's going to happen. They've reinitiated quantitative easing. We had the cut in deposit rate in the fourth quarter of last year. Yeah, and that's going to be on hold now for the foreseeable future. However, because the data have consistently underperformed expectations, and now, of course, we have this coronavirus, I think we're in you know, the, the fundamental state of the Eurozone economy may well have been sufficiently softer if this virus is not brought under control, let's say, over the next month or two, then all of a sudden the Eurozone economy becomes that much more vulnerable. And were that to be the case, there's got to be a chance we could see a cut in interest rates. So I think, you know, in answer to your question, 
question how the markets react to it if they come in in line with expectations i think what the survey consensus for the the key composite level of composite output index is 50.8 so that will compare well essentially that's unchanged from last time it really intimates that you know, the eurozone economy is just about keeping its head above water manufacturing is still in a recession so were we to see any kind of a hit to the services side then we're going to start getting some negative gdp numbers coming out so i think you know bottom line is that the ecb at this stage must be concerned about the way this eurozone economy is going and because of that financial markets particularly if we were to get a, a soft pmi flash on friday sure. you know they're going to start thinking that well who knows rates may have to come down again well you know i wanted to complain about something i uh, just to do so, a little bit i think you should do thank you it's uh, in the u.s okay we had japanese um, industrial production um, yesterday, and it was uh, uh, very, very weak. We had U.S. industrial production at the end of last week, and it too was very weak. And uh, it was hit by the shutting, the shutdown of the Boeing 737 Max production. It, it stripped almost a half a, a percentage point right. out of uh, volumes, uh, manufacturing volumes in the month. It's going to be a one-time effect. Um, and, uh, but I just wanted to note that it, uh, in the U.S., there is no more Lockheed. There is no more McDonnell Douglas. There is no one to, to compete with Boeing. And I think that that may have contributed to overconfidence or, or in any case, there's no other place for U.S. Um, uh, U.S. manufacturers to replace this what might be lost. Man, there's over 4,000 unfilled orders for this aircraft. Where are they going, going to go? Um, the Airbus would be a nice would, would be an obvious place to go, but there's no place for them to go in the U.S. So I think this lack of competition. Now this has uh, transpired over decades, but to have all your chips in one basket is just not capitalism, and it just I think it's bad. Uh, public policy, and that's what I just wanted to, to yeah, get at. Fair point. I, but I certainly, what you mentioned, uh, as part from the European side, I mean, Airbus are most definitely looking over their shoulders at Boeing, and they really are optimistic about picking up some, you know, some additional demand. Um, it's always the case that, you know, do customers remain you know, confident and you know, if they have to remain loyal to you, if they have problems in supply chains and everything else. You know, these days, you know, it's a very global market. It's very competitive, and they start looking elsewhere. So Airbus will certainly be hoping to pick up, you know, some kind of additional business. Um, what else should we talk? I should mention just in, t in general, just quickly, just going back to the euro, uh, the eurozone. In some, though, I think it's worth also looking at the currency markets at the moment. We've got a strong dollar, uh, but we also the counterpart to that is a weak euro. And the euro itself, and um, as we speak, we're trading what just over one dollar eight and a little bit cents at the moment. Um, euro now is its weakest level uh, since what April 2017. So really down over two percent so far in February. And I think you know it is really in part and parcel of the fact that the economic data out of Europe simply aren't living expectation, up to expectations at a time when, by and large, you know, your side of the water still seems to be doing pretty well. And, and I mention that just because I think it does leave, with this coronavirus and everything else, it leaves the euro looking a little bit exposed. And on this Thursday, we'll have the start of uh, the EU, their big budget 
planning ep- um, episode. This, this is looking for the next seven-year long-term budget plan. It kicks off at the meeting on Thursday. And, of course, so what's going to be different this time round is that Brexit has left a blooming great hole around about $12 billion or so in the EU's bank balance because the UK will no longer be co- contributing towards that EU budget. And so potentially there's plenty of scope here, I think, for you know something – there's always get some kind of you know, punch up around the table when all the different countries are trying to work out how much they should be paying into the, the EU budget and how much they should be getting back and so on. Well, this time around, simply because the budget's not be as big as it has been in the past, because the UK was a major net contributor into that budget, you know, it could be more sticky this time. And if it starts you know, causing some risks amongst the inner political harmony around the table, then you know, that could be another negative as far as the euro is concerned. And ostensibly, this thing's supposed to be sorted out by the end of this year and these things do tend to take a very long time when it comes to the eu Sticking with budgets, um, notice a segue there, I should mention developments in the UK and the resignation stroke sacking of Chancellor Sajid Javid by the uh, the new Johnson government in a cabinet reshuffle last week. I guess it's always a bit sad when financial markets respond positively to when someone gets given the boot. But that is exactly what happened, particularly as far as the pound's concerned um, last, last week. And it really just reflects that the expectation is that the new chancellor, who will be uh, Rishi Sunak, the uh, replacement for Javid, he's regarded as being much more likely to, well, introduce, let's say, a more reflationary fiscal policy and certainly abandon some of the uh, the austerity measures that we've seen in the past. So financial markets are taking this as, right, well, okay, prospects now for UK growth are perhaps that much better than they would have been under Javid. And indeed, we may see perhaps some decent numbers, which ultimately force UK interest rates to go up. So the budget, which at one point we thought might be delayed because the new guy doesn't have very long to do it, has in fact been confirmed today that it will be taking place on March the 11th. And although in uh, recent years a budget has tended to be a pretty boring affair over, over here in the UK, I think this time round with this new chancellor in and with the new Johnson government talking about investment and spending plans, there's going to be a, a lot of eyes on this and it's certainly be important for the gilt market and potentially important for, uh, for the pound as well. It could actually give the pound another leg higher because sterling certainly trading well off the back of that at the moment okay um what else we've mentioning um num, 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 num. Well, From we, ice- had, yep. we had u.s retail sales last uh, week and they uh, were for january they weren't so hot uh, um uh, a, a small gain as expected uh, on the headline level but flat uh for uh, central core reading um and uh but it, it's hard. Uh, January is a, a much oh, oh that gets me into see why I wanted to mention this was seasonal factors, Jeremy, because um, the comparisons for January retail sales are compared against December retail sales, and December is uh, by a third a much larger volume of sales than January. But um, but in uh, the way we do the monthly comparisons, you make adjustments, and you actually make a month-to-month adjustment against a very strong month, we, December, where, where the adjustment brings it down, and then you lift Australia, uh, you lift uh, January by a, a great deal, and then you try to to make a, a monthly comparison. A year-to-year comparison might also be useful, but um, that, that, that wasn't so great either. But is there a, and we got back to the fourth quarter in Europe, um, is there a seasonality thing? We had talked about that before, that more data have come in, um, and uh, any any thoughts? 
Well, I certainly would say, I mean, it's extremely difficult, I think, you know, trying to seasonally adjust almost any kind of time series when you get to sort of turning points in the year. So the December, January period tends to be extremely difficult. I mean, just look at the, you know, the, the size of seasonal adjustment factors on uh, you know, the US non-farm payroll in January. I mean, you know, without the seasonal adjustment, I mean, payrolls will go down, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I mean, it's well over a million. Um, there's huge positive seasonal adjustment factors they have to put in there just so you can compare the January adjusted number with December adjusted number mm -hmm. but that really does mean ultimately of course markets have to have faith in the seasonal adjustment process if you're going to compare you know adjusted down January with adjusted December then the turnaround in the, when what is assumed to be the seasonal adjustment factor will play a huge part in what the what the profile profile actually looks like but I guess all you can say is well at the end of the day I mean there's a lot of very clever statisticians out there mm -hmm. who work for these government bodies you have to have faith in them because let's be fair, looking at unadjusted data on a month-on-month -month basis, by and large, is a complete and utter waste of time. <laughs> it will give you a completely wrong idea of what's going on. Uh, but the policymakers haven't been talking about any special factors behind the fourth quarter. Um, Not really as far as Europe's concerned, no. And that's one reason why I think, you know, the idea that the ECB is definitely on hold for, let's say, all of 2020, you know, there's some chinks starting to appear in the armour around that now where markets mm -hmm. are starting to think that, well, if we don't start to see some better numbers soon, then we could well see some dovish noises coming out of the central bank. Mm -hmm. well, um, you know, uh, earlier, yep. I had mentioned uh, Japanese industrial production. It wasn't. It, it was uh, uh, Japanese GDP, and again, a fourth quarter that was uh, surprisingly weak. But the uh, industrial production numbers out of Japan, which will be coming in uh, I, I, the week after uh, this one, next week, um, they have been also very weak, and they've been in, in contraction um, like many uh, industrial production um uh, uh, country, uh, like many economies, and uh, and that's an important uh, uh, negative uh, for I think the 2020 outlook. And uh, will uh, you know trade improve this year? Uh, it may, uh, but I guess now the focus is is U.S. European tensions that's moved away from uh, China, and of course the uh, the virus isn't going to be helping Chinese production any. Um, so I think that is a um, or a risk for the global economy. And just one one thing I wanted to throw in, we had the housing market index today, which is from the U.S. home builders. And it was, once again, uh, very, very, very strong. Some of the strongest readings now in 35 years. Uh, so the housing sector, which had contributed to um, the second half growth last year in the U.S., looks like it's going to be contributing to the first uh, quarter growth substantially, which is, you know, which is a plus, which would be an offset to uh, manufacturing. And um, probably much needed. Since you, you mentioned Japan, I think probably just quickly worth mentioning uh, you know, some of the numbers there. As Mark was saying, um, we had a, a terrible fourth quarter for Japan. And quarter on quarter growth, so not annualized, was minus 1.6%. So to put that onto an annualized basis, so we could look at US terms, that's down 6.3%. Mm. Now, of that minus 1.6, minus 2.1 percentage points came out of domestic demand. Now, for people who remember, 
remember, of course, there was this hiking consumption tax in October yeah. in Japan. So expectations were that together with that and the, the number of natural disasters we've had in the country, fourth quarter would be bad. However, it was much worse than expected. It was also a lot worse than that the BOJ was expecting. Mm-hmm. And there are signs now coming out from you know some of the work, some comments coming out of the BOJ to the effect that, as you mentioned, China's obviously got big problems with the coronavirus. It's also impacting Japan, surprise, surprise, significantly in terms of some of the, you know, the survey data we've had out there as well. There's a real chance we could actually see Japan falling into technical recession by the end of the first quarter. And if we were to get that, then that's got to be bad news for the global economy in general. So I think, um, you know, there are quite interesting times at the moment. There does seem to be, to me, a degree of complacency in the markets that the coronavirus won't have a big impact. But unless it's sorted out soon, things could well be very different. Well, the bet is, is that the stimulus is going to offset the, the, the virus impact. Um, I guess that's what the markets are telling us. I think that's what they're hoping, but you've got to think it starts getting a little bit iffy when you start you know, assuming things, you know, positives coming out of negatives and so on. But I guess time will tell. Um, okay, right. Well, I guess we've been talking for long enough. Yeah. Uh, you done your side? I guess so, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Okay, right. Let's round it off there then as far as this week's concerned. From Mark and myself, as always, uh, thanks very much for listening. Please do tune in again next week. And don't forget to uh, keep an eye on Econoday's global economic calendar to make sure you're up to date with all the market moving data and events. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. <laughs>